Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. It's a wonderful time for our kids to be ministered to the younger ones. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. I'm going back to my other preaching Bible. I used that big Charles Spurgeon large print Bible, but it just got too big for the pulpit. So I'm praying that I can see this morning. If not, I've got my reading glasses, which I don't really want to wear. But when you turn 50 and you start losing your eyesight, some of you understand what I'm talking about. So Let me begin this morning by asking you two questions. And then I'm going to ask you a third, but I'm going to start out with the first question. Here's the first question I'd like to ask you. What are you really passionate about? I mean, what really drives you? What motivates you? What consumes you? For some of you, maybe it's a sport. It's a hobby. It's a job. Maybe it's a pastime. Maybe it's a cause. Maybe it's your spouse, your family. Maybe you're passionate about your favorite team. Some of you are just chomping at the bit for the Broncos to start because that's what you're waiting for. Others, it could be a political cause. It could be a a candidate. For some of you children, I've learned being around you, it could be a video game. It could be something that is what you're passionate about. For others, it could be hunting. It could be working out. It could be exercising. It could be doing all types of things. If we went around the sanctuary today, we would have a lot of different answers about what am I truly passionate about? What drives me? What consumes me? What do I get excited about? What am I passionate about? That's the first question. Second question. When was the last time you expressed righteous anger towards something that happened? A righteous anger. It's often interesting that the things that you're most passionate about, when they get threatened, when, they, when, when something goes against what you're most passionate about, that's when you get the most angry. And sometimes it's a righteous anger. Perhaps your kid gets bullied at school, and they come home sobbing, and they tell you the story, and everything in your heart begins to boil, and you want to take up the offense for your child that's been bullied, and you want to have a righteous anger. You want to march into that teacher, and you want to address the issue because you have a righteous anger. Or for some of you, maybe you were wrongfully terminated. You came in, and you found out that you had lost your job, and you didn't do anything wrong, and that actually the person that was cheating, the person that was kind of doing things that were illegal, they got promoted, they got the job, and you got wrongfully terminated, and you just have this righteous anger. It's not fair. I've done everything right. Why did this happen to me? So when was the last time you were passionate, or what are you really passionate about? And then second question When was the last time you expressed a righteous anger? Well, let me ask you the most pressing question this morning. When was the last time you were passionate, truly passionate about Jesus and His glory that you did something radical about it? You were passionate about Jesus and His glory. 
That's a harder question, isn't it? So in the passage before us this morning, Jesus is acting with great passion and with righteous anger for the glory of God's name in the temple. This is more than just Jesus kicking out the money changers. There's something deeper going on here. So let's read this account together. Luke chapter 19. This is right after Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Mark's gospel tells us this happens on the Monday after Palm Sunday that we looked at last week. So this is, this is Holy Week leading up to Good Friday. This is, happens on the Monday. So picking up in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus will go into the temple and will clear out the money changers. Luke is going to focus us on the temple for the next few chapters leading up to the crucifixion. The temple is central to the worship in Israel, so things are focusing on the temple. Now, what is going on in the temple on Monday leading up to Friday? What happens on Friday? Friday's Passover. So this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is Passover week. And so what happens during Passover week? People would travel from miles upon miles to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to sacrifice the pure spotless lamb for Passover. And here's what would happen. When people traveled from faraway places, they would not buy their lambs way far away. They would wait till they got close to Jerusalem because it's hard to carry animals as you're traveling. So when they got close to Jerusalem, that's when they would buy the animal. They would buy the lamb to present in the temple for the Passover sacrifice. And here's what happened. They were coming from all over different parts of the world, and they have different types of currency. And so they had to exchange money. Like when you go into DIA and you're traveling, any of you have in a foreign country, you go to the money exchange and you have to exchange your money. So there's money changers there. They had to exchange the money because they had foreign currency. And here's the issue. Every male above the age of 20 had to pay the temple tax. So for, for even to be part of Passover, you had to not only pay the tax for the temple, but you also had to pay to get the animal. And so if you had foreign currency, you had to exchange that currency in order to buy a lamb, in order to pay the temple tax. And so there were these money changers, and they were selling livestock. And it's not so much they were selling livestock, that's not the problem. Because these people needed to have the animals for the sacrifice. It wasn't that they were selling the livestock, it was where they were doing it. And how they were doing it. Where were they doing it? Usually, the money changers would set up shop on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is east of the temple. You come down the Kidron Valley, you go to the temple. And so on the Mount of Olives, where, that's usually where they set up shop, and you'd go over there and you'd buy all your animals. But on this particular Passover week, they set up shop in the outer court of the temple. 
it was called the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place that non-Jews were allowed to go. They were welcomed into the temple, but that's as far as they could go. That's the only place they could worship was in the court of the Gentiles. So basically, these money changers were setting up shop in the court of the Gentiles, preventing the Gentiles from worshiping. And so not only were they preventing the Gentiles from worshiping by setting up shop in the court of the Gentiles, but they were charging exorbitant rates to the people and cheating them. And this was all being overseen by the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They were making sure this well-oiled machine continued to operate because they got money from this whole system. It was estimated at that time that on Passover week, during the Passover, 200,000 lambs would be slaughtered. That's a lot of money. That's a huge operation. And so what Jesus does here, he's going to come in and interrupt this operation. This court of the Gentiles where these money changers are engaging in this behavior. Not only were the pocketbooks of these rulers being affected, but the worship of the Gentiles was being polluted. Now, Luke here is pretty brief in what he says. There's only two verses there. He began to drive out those who sold, and then he quotes from two Old Testament passages. Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more detail. You also see it in Matthew. So Mark's gospel, in Mark 11, 15-17, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. What Mark records is that Jesus actually turns over the tables and does not allow anybody to carry anything in. So there's a little bit more dramatic display here of turning over the tables. Now, this was unheard of for one man to come in and stop this huge operation from happening. What nerve did Jesus have to come in and just stop all of this by overturning the tables, stopping the money changing, stopping what was going on? Luke uses a very interesting word there for driving out. Verse 46 I'm sorry, verse 45, he entered the temple and he began to drive out. That's the same exact word that's used earlier in the Gospel of Luke for driving out demons, casting out demons. It's the same Greek word. So Luke is kind of equating what's going on here as almost demonic in a sense. It needs to be cast out. It needs to be thrust out. They need to be driven out of here. The same way a demon needs to be driven out of a person. And you see, this is extreme behavior. Throwing over tables, driving people out, having this passionate, righteous anger. This is not the Jesus that we're used to seeing. When you think of Jesus, this is not the Jesus that our culture tends to think about. The, the docile Jesus walking around with lambs in his hand, giving nice statements and just telling everybody, don't judge and be nice to one another. That's not the Jesus here that we see. He's passionate. 
He's zealous for God's glory. He has a righteous anger. Now, we need to be very careful here because Jesus can express holy anger and do it in a way that's not sinful because Jesus never sinned. We can express righteous anger, but there's always going to be sin blowing up in in us because we're sinful. Jesus can express a righteous anger and never sin because he never once sinned. So this is a holy anger. This is a righteous anger. This is a, a, a right for him to have this type of anger. And so it's not just like Jesus has this irrational outburst. It's not Jesus flying off the handle. Jesus is doing this because of what's happening in God's house. Jesus has a passion for God's glory in the house of God. And it's being desecrated. It's being messed with. It's being polluted. God's glory, God's house is being impacted by these money changers. They've taken what's holy, they've taken what's pure, and they're making it evil, and they're making it impure. And Jesus is not going to just sit idly by and allow this to happen. So you need to have a category in your mind for a holy, passionate Jesus that's zealous for the glory of God. When God's glory is on the line, Jesus is going to stand up and do something about it. He's not going to idly sit by and let this just pass. He's got a passion, a righteous anger for the glory of God. And I I wonder if you have that same attitude. I'm afraid that in our culture, when you hear the Lord's name in vain, it goes in one ear and out the other. Does it ever bother you when you hear the Lord's name being profaned? I'll never forget, when I was in high school, I was playing basketball at the Y, the YMCA. And so my dad was a pastor, and a bunch of his pastor friends were playing. We were playing a pickup game, and there were some other guys there. And we were playing basketball, and we were all getting into it. And this one guy shot, and he missed it. And he used the Lord's name in vain. And I didn't think anything of it, but what happened next shocked me. A pastor got up in his face and said, Stop it! Stop it right now! It's not God's fault that you missed that shot. You will not use the Lord's name in vain if you continue to do that. You're off the court. It's not going to be acceptable right here, right now. Stop it. Got in the guy's face. And I'm a 16-year-old kid like, whoa. You a little passionate about the Lord's name being used in vain on the basketball court? That pastor was. I mean, he was boiling when he heard the Lord's name in vain. And he stopped the game and got in the guy's face. And I remember he's like, it's not God's fault you missed that shot. It was just a bad shot. Don't blame him. That was pretty extreme. That was radical. But I I look back and I wonder, where is that passion for God's name that we have somehow lost today? Now, as I was doing Bible study this week, I went on a tangent. So I want you to go on a tangent with me. And here, it's not really a tangent because it's in the text. Jesus, in verse 46, quotes two Old Testament passages. He quotes from Isaiah, and he quotes from Jeremiah. And you can just gloss over that because maybe you've read this passage multiple times. This will be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of robbers. Move on. But my question was, why did Jesus choose those two passages? What's it about those two passages that he quoted? So I said, let me go back and read those passages. 
And as you go back and you read those passages in their Old Testament context, then you understand a little bit more about why Jesus quoted those. So I need you to indulge me this morning. We're going to jump out of Luke, and we're going to go look at these two Old Testament passages. So let me ask you, first of all, to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8. This is the first part of the passage that Jesus quotes here from the Old Testament. Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. Now, let me give you a little background because we're jumping right into an Old Testament passage and, there, and you need to have a little background. Chapter 56, God is talking about how he is bringing in the outsiders, the non-Jews. And he, and he has two categories, the foreigner, the Gentile, and the eunuch. I'm not going to go into a lot of explanation about a eunuch. Parents, you can discuss that with your children after the service. But these were two categories of people, the eunuch and the foreigner, that were really not allowed to come into Israel. They were not allowed to be part of the worship. But God is making a promise to the foreigners that if they come into his house, God will welcome them. So let's pick up in verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, the Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Notice in verse 7, the Lord says, I'm going to bring these people to my house. I'm going to bring these outsiders to my holy hill. And then you see there in verse 8, the Lord gathers the outcasts. Not just the Israelites, but the Lord's going to gather the Gentiles, the nations. The Lord's going to do this. He's going to gather the peoples, and he's going to bring them to his house so that they can be worshipers. God sovereignly gathers the non-Jews here in the Old Testament to bring them to the house of the Lord so that they can worship him. Notice the language that's used here in verse 6. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, who minister to Him, who serve Him, who love the name of the Lord. I, I love that. Who love the name of the Lord. You might just, just gloss over that, but in the Old Testament, to love the name of the Lord was more than just, hey, I'm going to show up at the temple. To love the name of the Lord, to love the name of Yahweh, meant you were entering into a covenant relationship with the living God. You were loving him. You were serving him. You were joyfully, verse 7, to make them joyful in my house of prayer. So God's plan all along was not only for the Jews to come to the temple and worship and serve and be joyful in prayer, but it was for all the nations. It was for the Gentiles too wasn't just exclusively for the Jews. It was for the nations to come and God would gather them to be worshipers. And I want you to remember something. 
When God gave Solomon the instructions to build the temple, he built that into the instructions. Let me, let, let's just go back and read it. It'll be on the screen. 1 Kings 8, 41-43. When God is giving instructions to Solomon on how to build the temple, listen to the instructions that are given before the temple's even built. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, i.e. a Gentile, a foreigner, someone that's part of the nations, when they come from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm... When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. What did God say from the very beginning? When you build the temple, don't just build it for the Jews, but build it for the nations, because if the nations come and they hear about the glory of the Lord, invite them in so they too can be worshipers. They can join in the worship of the living God. So God's plan from the very beginning in the building of the temple was not just for the Jews, but for the nations to come and to worship the living God. That's the context for why Jesus is upset that the court of the Gentiles is being polluted. The Gentiles are being prevented from worshiping the living God. And that was God's intention from the very beginning that they would be drawn in. So what we see here is the priority of missions on the heart of Jesus, on the heart of God. Bring the nations. Bring the peoples. Gather the peoples. Build the temple for the nations. Let the nations come. What's the mission of the church? Is it to show up and sit here and kind of relax in an air-conditioned building and hear some good preaching? What's the mission of the church? Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of whom? Of all nations. The Greek word there is ethne. That's where we get the word ethnicities. All the nations, all the ethnicities. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Our mission is to go to the nations. Now that means we take mission trips to foreign nations, but it also means your neighbor next door that doesn't know Jesus. The coworker that you work with that doesn't know Jesus, the person in your school, the person on your team, the person on your street, the person that you come in contact that doesn't know Jesus, we are called to go to them and make disciples and tell them about how they can have salvation through Jesus. Now listen to the famous words of John Piper. This quote has stuck with me for about 20 years now. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Therefore, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. You ever thought about that? Missions exist because worship doesn't. Why do we do missions? Because there's people living in unreached areas that aren't worshipers. They're not worshiping Jesus. So yes, we go tell them the gospel so they can be saved, but they're saved unto worship, to worship the living God. That's the ultimate goal of worship of missions is to make worshipers. The people that are in unreached areas would 
repent and believe in Jesus and so become worshipers of the living God, that Jesus would be their passion, that they would worship his holy name. So the first thing we see in here is a a priority for missions. There shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. It's supposed to be gathering the nations, going to the nations, a heart for the nations. But the second thing we see that Jesus talks about here is a passion for prayer. My house will be a prayer, a house of prayer for all the nations. A passion for prayer. My house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. Is Emmanuel Baptist Church a house of prayer? Where we take prayer seriously as a top priority. Colossians 4.2 Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Steadfastly. Continue. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. You go to the book of Acts, and I, and I challenge you, if you read chapters 1 through 6 in the book of Acts, you will see the apostles in the early church devoting themselves. That's the key word that's used there in Acts, devoting themselves to prayer. Passionately pursuing and devoting themselves to prayer. What happens in the upper room? Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Waiting for Pentecost, waiting for the Holy Spirit, they're devo- devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 6.4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Most of you know I'm a huge fan of Charles Spurgeon pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London in the mid to late 1800s. The first megachurch, I guess you'd say, 6,000 people. So it was a hot July day at Spurgeon's Church, and these five students from America wanted to come and visit Metropolitan Tabernacle. They wanted to meet the venerable Charles Spurgeon and hear him preach, and they were excited to show up. And so they showed up early, and there was a man that met them at the door, kind of a kind man, a kind of a quiet man, and, and they said, we're here to hear Spurgeon preach, and, and we're excited. We've come all the way from America. We're here. And this man said, well, let me kind of show you around a little bit. Uh, let, me, let me give you a tour of the building. And they're like, oh, that's kind of cool. The guy's going to give us a tour of the building. So the guy takes him on a tour of the building, and then he takes him downstairs and says, hey, do you want to see the boiler room? And they're like, the boiler room? It's the middle of July. I don't know if I want to see the boiler room. What's, what's the deal with like, going down and seeing a heater, a furnace? And he says, let me show you the boiler room. So they go downstairs, and this man opens the door, and there's 200 people on their knees praying. And this man says, this is the heart of our church. This is the boiler room. This is where people pray. This is where people pray for me. Oh, by the way, I'm Pastor Charles Spurgeon. I would not be where I am today without the prayers of my people. Now, can you imagine a worship service where 200 people are on their knees in another room praying for their pastor and the preaching of God's word? And that went on for years at Spurgeon's church, and I think that's why he was so, quote-unquote, successful. And I say that God was the one that made him successful because of prayer. Do you have a passion for prayer? Do you have a passion to go to the nations? I want to announce something this morning that's going to be in October, but I feel like I need to announce it this morning. 
We had planned to do this in 2020, but of course COVID hit. But Emmanuel is planning a huge weekend in October called the Global Impact Conference. You're like, what's the Global Impact Conference? This is the best way I can describe it. It's a mission trip in reverse. As opposed to four or five of us going to India or four or five of us going to Moscow or four or five of us going somewhere, we're inviting all of our mission partners back to Emmanuel for one weekend. So right now, we're working with Pastor Prasad to get him back here. Our missionaries, and I can't say it because we're on live stream, but their initials are D and K. Our friends, they will be here. We have people from all over the country and world coming back for a concentrated week where you will hear them speak. We will have celebrations. We'll have a missions fair. It's basically a way to show that Emmanuel has an Acts 1-8 vision. And instead of a few of us going on an overseas mission trip, we're going to bring everybody back to Emmanuel so we can love on our mission partners. So that's coming up in October. It's the Global Impact Conference. So Jesus had a passion for missions. Let the nations be gathered. He had a passion for prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But yet Jesus quotes from a second Old Testament passage. He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7. And so let's just turn over one book, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7. And let's read the context of where Jesus says, my house you've made into a den of robbers. So my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. That comes from Isaiah. But you've made it a den of robbers. That comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, let's look at the context here because what I'm about to share with you I'm, is actually a sermon. Okay, Jeremiah preaches a sermon standing at the front of the temple as worshipers are coming in. So think about it this way. Before you even walk in the door to hear the pastor preach, the pastor's out on the front porch preaching to you. These worshipers are coming into the temple, and God says, Jeremiah, go stand at the entrance and give this message as people are coming into worship. Okay, so, so Jeremiah is not talking to pagans. He's not talking to these rebel idolaters that are from far off places. He's talking to Jewish people that are showing up for worship. And what does he have to say to these people? So let's pick up in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that's the temple, and proclaim there his word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Okay, this is addressed to Israelites. Men of Judah who enter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, making offerings to Baal, and going after other gods that you've not known? And then come and stand before me in the house which is called by my name and say, We're delivered, only to go on doing these abominations? 
Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Here's the picture. These worshipers are coming in to worship, and they're believing the lie. Now, you don't get this in your Hebrew text, but when Jeremiah there in verse 3 says, don't be deceived, I'm sorry, verse 4, do not trust in these deceptive words, these deceptive words, in the original language, just think of all caps, the lie, the big lie. Don't believe the big lie. Do not believe the big lie. And what was the big lie they were believing? Well, we're okay. We're God's chosen people. After all, God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a promise to David. The temple's been built. We're cool. We're okay. There's nothing wrong here. We're God's chosen people, so we can come into worship, but outside we can do whatever we dang well please. But when we come into worship, everything's okay. They had the superstitious attitude toward the temple. If they, uh, that's why they repeated it three times. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah says, amend your ways. Change your ways. In other words, undergo a thoroughgoing repentance. Don't walk into this place with the attitude and the sin that you have. And then notice what he calls them out for in verse 10. So he's calling them out for all these sins. You guys are breaking the Ten Commandments. You're following false gods. You're following Baal. You're being rebellious. You're acting like God doesn't see. And then in verse 10, you come and you stand before me in this house. The wording there is like, you come and you offer your worship. You come into the worship service and you stand before me. And what do you say? We're delivered. We're safe. Things are cool. There's no problem. Everything's great between me and God. Then notice what Jeremiah says there. Only to go on doing these abominations. That's the lie you're believing. Jewish people coming in here men of Judah. You think you can do whatever you want in flagrant disobedience and then walk into church and act like nothing else happened. It's a lie that you're believing, Jeremiah says. So much so that you're making God's house a den of robbers. A place where sinners hide out. And you don't think God sees you. Why are you hiding out? Because you want to not be seen. What's the very last thing there in verse 11? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You can't pretend. You can't go through the motions. You can't live outside like a flagrant rebel and then come in here and act like everything's cool. God sees it. You can't hide. You're making his house a den of robbers. So we've seen a passion for the nations, a passion for prayer. But here's the third thing that Jesus talks about. Purity of worship. Purity of worship. I wonder if we're guilty of the same attitude ourselves. Do we believe the big lie? And what's the big lie? The big lie is we can do whatever we want outside the four walls of this church. We can, we can live however we want. We can, we can do whatever we want in flagrant rebellion. And then when we walk through these doors, we think, that's okay, I'm in church. Nobody else knows. I'll go through the motions. Well, maybe nobody else knows, but God sees. And God knows. 
and you're defiling God's house. And we said it earlier in our time of confession, Matthew 15, 7 through 9. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You walk, Jeremiah says, you walk into church as if nothing's wrong. You're going through the motions with your lips and maybe with your hands and maybe outwardly, but your heart's far from God. You're continuing these abominations. Amend your ways. So from this passage in Luke, where Jesus clears out the money changers, it's about three things. When you really dive into the text and look at the Old Testament, it's about the priority of missions, the nations. It's about a priority of of prayer, a passion for prayer, and then the purity of your worship. Do you have those three things on your agenda the way that Jesus did? Do you have a passion for prayer? Do you develop a habit of prayer? Do you have a heart for the nations? Do you have a heart for personal evangelism? Do you share the gospel with those that are around you that don't know Jesus? Do you pray for missionaries? Do you have a heart to see God reach the nations? And then do you have a pure lifestyle? Does your lifestyle out there match what you're trying to pretend like in here? Now, the question is, how does this all happen? How can you do this? Well, I don't want you to miss it. Let's go back to Luke. I've got one of these fancy things, so I got back there faster. But turn back to Luke, chapter 19, our original text for this morning. And I want you to notice something. How does it end? How does this little section end? Okay, so after Jesus clears the money temple, uh, the, the the temple with the money changers. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Jeremiah. Then, verse 47, as he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Okay, so the leaders are already plotting to kill him, but his time is not yet. It has to happen according to God's timetable with Judas betraying him and all the stuff there. But look at verse 48. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were what? What does your Bible say? Hanging on his every word. The, the grammar here is so wonderful. It's, it's actually two Greek words side by side that convey the action of continually just like hanging on every word that's coming out of Jesus' mouth. They're like just ready to, to receive it. They're listening. They're ready to grasp it. And so that's the question. Do you Hang on every word that comes from the mouth of your Lord. Do you spend time saturating yourself in this world so that that you're hanging on every word that comes from here? You're taking it into your heart. You're saturating yourself with Scripture. You have an intent to obey. Let's be real honest this morning. I want to be real honest. What What are the top three things that are really hard in your life as a Christian? I would imagine. Number one, personal evangelism, sharing, sharing your faith. Anybody here an expert in that? Number two, prayer. And number three, personal holiness. Fighting sin in your life. How do you pray? How do you share the gospel? And how do you live a pure life? That's a struggle, isn't it? 
That's a struggle. So what's the answer? I could stand up here and say, well, do better. That's not the answer. The answer is to hang on every word that Jesus says. We need to remember something. We need to remember that we need grace. I think it's interesting. This was read at the opening of our service this morning, but Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is a pastor. If you're a pastor, are you a strong Christian? Hopefully, okay. But I'm, I, I, th- I find it interesting what Paul tells Timothy, who's a mature believer. In 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, Paul tells a pastor, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Now, here's the question. Had Timothy forgotten Jesus? Remember Jesus! Okay. Well, thanks, Paul. That's kind of cool. I, I didn't forget Jesus. Why do you think Paul would say to a young pastor, remember Jesus? Why is Paul saying to us, remember Jesus? Because what do we often forget? Well, we know a lot about Jesus. We know a lot of facts about Jesus. We know he died on the cross. We know he rose again. We can get so familiar with the facts that we forget that we need his grace every day. (laughs) Remember Jesus. Don't forget Jesus. That's a weird thing to say, Paul, but I wonder how often we do. We go about our merry way. We go about our lives. And the last thing we're thinking about is Jesus. I got to pray. I got to share my faith. I got to live a pure life. Remember Jesus. His grace is sufficient. We live by faith in Him. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to remember Jesus is to live by faith. Live by faith. Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. Find your joy in Christ. So we need his daily power for prayer for personal evangelism to the nations, and for purity in both our life and in our worship. And so my call to us today is, would we all hang on every word that comes out of his mouth? Our ears would be attentive to every word that comes out of the mouth of Jesus that we find in this book. My word to all of us is this. Remember Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. I see you being passionate and having a righteous anger about prayer, about the priority of the missions to the nations, and about purity in worship. So much so that you did something radical about it. You overturned the tables and you drove out the money changers because those things are priorities to you, Jesus. And if they're such high priorities to you, they need to be priorities to us.
And so, Lord, would you give us grace this week to be a people of persistent prayer? Lord, would you help us this week to be a people that share the gospel with our friends and family? And, Lord, that we would have a passion for the nations, of going to the nations and praying for the nations and desiring that this would be a house of prayer for all the nations. And, Lord, help us in our purity and worship. Lord, help us to think about the next time we walk into these doors. Do we honor you with our lips, but are our hearts far from you? Do we need to amend our ways? Do we need to repent? Do we need to maybe even get on our faces in prayer and contrition before we even come to church just to be ready to meet you? Lord, we know that we need grace. We need power. We need the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I, love what, I love this passage of Scripture that Timothy Here's from Paul, remember Jesus. That seems kind of a weird thing to think about, Lord, that we would forget you. But how often do we live our lives basically as functional atheists saying we really don't, we really don't, we live as if we, we don't even worry about Jesus. But Lord, help us to remember you, help us to rely upon you, help us to trust you, help us to live by faith because you loved us and gave yourself for us. Lord, we leave this place encouraged because we have been empowered. We've been encouraged. We've been challenged. Lord, help us to have a heart for prayer, a heart for the nations, and a heart for purity and worship the way that you did, Jesus. Let it be a burning passion for us like it was for you. And we ask this in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen and amen.